Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Karen Brown to our show. Dr. Brown is the Dean of the School of Education at the University of the Virgin Islands. So tell me about the University of the Virgin Islands and why students select both the university and your college. Sure. Well, the University of the Virgin Islands, also referred to as UVI, was established in 1962 when the VVN College of the Virgin Islands, CVI, was chartered. Uh, UVI is a public co-ed land-grant historically Black university, or as you would have heard it referred to as historically Black in college, historically Black college and university. It gained HBCU status uh, in 1986 and is the only HBCU located outside of the continental United States. We're proud of that. And UVI is geographically located in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is a territory of the United States. Um, It's about I I would say a 20-minute plane ride from Puerto Rico for those who may not be as familiar with the U.S. Virgin Islands, with this territory. So it's pretty close to Puerto Rico. Es el lado de Puerto Rico. (laughs) Um, It's close to Puerto Rico. It has, the UBI has approximately, I would say, give or take 1,600 students enrolled on the two campuses the Albert Sheen campus on St. Croix, which is the largest of the islands that comprise the USVI, and the Orville E. Ken campus on St. Thomas, the capital. And that's where I am. I'm, I'm in St. Thomas, but as you know, my position is, is territorial. So I, I travel back and forth between um, both campuses. Uh, UVI offers 99 undergraduate and graduate degree programs across its six colleges and schools. And our theme is historically American, uniquely Caribbean, and globally interactive. We share this identity in that we're geographically located in the Caribbean, and we have that cultural identity as being Caribbean and being a part of the African diaspora. But we also we also have the identity of being Americans. We've been Americans since the Danish sold us to the United States over 100 (laughs) years ago. (laughs) Uh, In addition to being the only institution to hold HBCU status outside of the continental United States, UBI is the first HBCU to offer comprehensive free tuition to eligible students. Mm -hmm. And this is accomplished through the Virgin Islands Higher Education Scholarship Program. UBI is is also the only institution of higher education in this U.S. territory. So uh, others would either have to, I guess, leave the territory or uh, maybe uh, enroll online in order to attend another institution of higher education. So um, that's something that's very, very important. We do cater to students um, although we're a university, we cater to students who are also interested in offerings at a junior college. So we offer certificates, we offer associates degrees as well. So we meet the educational needs of our residents locally, as well as individuals in neighboring Caribbean island countries. 
the School of Education in particular supports local school systems as well as ministries of education in, in these neighboring islands to prepare the workforce through what we call Grow Your Own Teacher Education and Other School Professional Programs. Uh, we're experiencing a crisis like the National Teacher and Other School Professional Shortages in the U.S. mainland. So what we're doing is through these Grow Your Own programs, we're trying to address those shortages. Um, what What's your distance between both your campuses? I would say as much as 40 miles of ocean. You cannot get from St. Thomas to St. Croix or St. Croix to St. Thomas by a car. You can't get in a car and drive over a bridge either. Um, you can get from St. Thomas to St. Croix and vice versa via an airplane, a seaplane, which is about a 20-minute ride, or a ferry, which is a two-hour ride, which would be the same amount of time um, to get to Puerto Rico. I see. I see. Well, what's new at your college? Well, uh, in fall 2022, we received new national accreditation by the Association for Advancing Quality in Teacher Education. ACWEP is the acronym. Um, it's pretty new and uh, the focus is on excellence in educator preparation. And most people may have heard of NCATE. NCATE has gone away. I think NCATE went away in 2015 and then it became CAPE. And, and then those who were members of NCATE had the choice of either going to CAPE or um, ACREP, and some have decided if they were regionally accredited um, or accredited within their state, then, you know, that they may have chosen not to be accredited. But what we're proud of is that we have this, this national accreditation that we have chosen ACREP because of their cultural uh, focus, culturally competent focus, um, an emphasis on local context and rigor, knowing that, that, that both are, are equally important. Uh, the period of accreditation with AQIP is seven years. And then this coming Saturday, March 4th, 2023, the School of Education will receive the President's Appreciation Award for achieving this accreditation. So oh, congratulations. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And in addition to our undergraduate programs in inclusive early childhood education, elementary education, secondary education, and our graduate programs in school counseling, school psychology, educational leadership, and a PhD in a creativity and innovation for change um, program. We offer students, UBI employees, and the local community early care and education services for their children at our Inclusive Child Care Lab and Diagnostic Center. Our pre-service teachers have an opportunity to try out what they're learning, to apply what they're learning uh, with the use of this, uh, this lab school. And we also have a partnership with our School of Nursing so that the nursing students are there as well conducting screenings as part of the Diagnostic Center. So we're oh, super proud of that. And the, the lab school is funded by Title III funds and housed on both campuses. Wow, that's exciting. Do you have any uh, new programs or anything on the horizon? Well, we have been focused on thinking about developing a, 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 what is it, a speech language pathology program. We're looking at either at the master's level 
or a program that would be at the undergraduate level, but help to have students transition into a master's program, um, the speech language pathology assistant program, because there are shortages here in, in the islands with regards to uh, those uh, other school professional um, or therapy uh, positions. Oh, good. Um, can you talk about yourself and the path that led you to become a dean at UVI? Sure, absolutely. I am a proud seed of the Virgin Island soil. Now, <laughs> while I was born in St. Thomas, I spent half of my childhood years in New York. I oh. returned to St. Thomas first as a 10-year-old. And the only thing I knew about this place was it was an island and I was born here. I came here kicking and screaming. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it, you know, And um, but I'm super, super proud and happy and grateful to my my father who wanted us to move back and to understand this part of my heritage. Um, so I moved back, at, as I said, at the age of 10 with my family. And then I came back again um, as an adult almost eight years ago. And after residing in the U.S. mainland for 20 plus years. So I may not sound like your 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 ordinary Caribbean person. As I said, I'm a speech language pathologist. By training, I continue to practice. And my first years of life, as I was learning to 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 talk, was in the U.S. mainland in, in New York. So I, I I did at one point sound like a New Yorker growing up here. <laughs> <laughs> Got teased consistently, <laughs> called a Yankee, you know, all of that, and. <laughs> And so now, you know, I don't know what I sound like at this point, but it's not native Virgin Islander, although I can do a little bit of what they call code switching back and forth. (laughs) So as I mentioned before, I'm a speech language pathologist and my PhD is in special education. I have two master's degrees. My master's degree, um, one is speech language pathology. The other one is an MPH, master's of public health. And um, I returned home to work at UVI as an associate director for a university center for excellence in developmental disabilities. I've been in the field of developmental disabilities for over 30 years. And um, the USED, which is one of 67 across the US and its territories, is also housed in the School of Education. Mm. Uh, my former dean thought that I was being underutilized and began grooming me. She started working with me. I um, pr- Prior to coming to UVI, I was in a faculty position. I was a program director of speech pathology programs, had earned tenure, you know, and promotion, gave all that up. Um, there's uh, There are high needs here. And so it may sound cliche, but that part of that was for me to give back to a place that I believe given so much to me, to uh, make me who I am uh, today. So anyway, as I was saying, my, my former dean thought I was being underutilized and she began grooming me to take her place. Um, in the beginning, I didn't know what she was doing. I just figured you know, she wanted assistance. Um, she said I was being underutilized. Great. And then it became apparent <laughs> that as she was passing more and more um, opportunities on, um, times when she was away, placing me um, in in the lead position as an acting dean. And then when um, she moved on to become a, an associate uh, provost, um, recommending me to be the interim dean at that point. Um, but it has um, contributed to to me thinking more about myself and 
um, my skills and abilities. And I, I believe that uh, being in this position is, to me, it's like second nature. And so I'm happy to be here. And 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 I do, I do often pay homage to her and and her um, her succession planning, and believe that I should also do the same. So I'm trying to do that now. Oh, good. Um, how long have you been a dean there? I became interim dean in 2019, and then I became the permanent dean permanent quote unquote because <laughs> as you know we we work at the at the pleasure we serve at the pleasure of our of our bosses um but I became a permanent dean in 2021 so um since 2019 has your leadership style changed at all or are you still pretty much how you're doing it from day one I think it has it has evolved somewhat I've always come in with this this idea of of shared governance that hasn't changed, of having a, a passion for what we're doing, of looking at uh, the skills in, in each individual who, who report to me. Um, and uh, I do know that my patience has increased. <laughs> um, and uh, trying more and more to, to uh, what is it, to trust others in their, in, you know, in their, uh, their roles and not to take on so much for myself. So I think that part has changed, but I continue to, to recognize that it's not just about me. It's not about me, right? It's about the team yeah. and, and um, to uh, strike that balance between um Making sure that I am loyal and an advocate, a strong advocate for our needs, my of my the needs of my academic unit, but also knowing that I am an administrator for this university, and I do need to also maintain um, what is it, the, my role as an administrator, and to maintain the ideals, the mission, and the vision of the university. Do you think um, since you? have gone through tenure and you, you know, I mean, you've gone through the process that kind of helps you have a better relationship with faculty. I do think so. I think that I can, in terms of serving as a, as a mentor for, especially for those who are um, assistant professors who have not achieved tenure. Um, I bring experiences, not just here, so the first time that I achieved tenure was at another institution. And um, I was actually the first black person in my department to achieve tenure. And then the first black, no, the first speech language pathologist, regardless of age, race, gender, to uh, that uh, speech language pathology faculty member to achieve tenure. And um, I believe that those experiences coupled with experiences now, the fact that as an administrator, I was able to achieve tenure with everything that we have to do, pulled in so many different directions to focus on the tenure dossier, <laughs> promotion dossier was a lot. And many people often just don't do it. In, yeah. in my position, I'm talking about, they just, they just will maintain that contract as an administrator. But I thought it because of my identity as, as a, as a faculty member first, um, that was important for me to achieve. Yeah, good for you. Uh, what's been your 
proudest moments so far at UVI? One of the proudest moments for me at UVI um, has been achieving national accreditation for seven years, as I just um, spoke about not too long ago. Uh, this is not my first time leading a successful accreditation process. However, it is my first time in my role as dean and while at UVI. And leading this process has been a labor of love. I am so proud of what we have accomplished. And this is particularly because we're holding our own as a small academic unit in the American Caribbean with fewer resources alongside larger schools and colleges of education in the US mainland. And another proud moment was co-launching the Child Care Lab with the former Dean. I um, am a co-author of the grant that funded this program and um, have transitioned from being a co-author. We've transitioned from focusing on an and after school care, because that was the that was the charge, develop um, this narrative so that we can fund an after school lab using Title III funds. And when I came in, I said, we can do more than this. Let's do an early care and education child care lab that does incorporate our pre-service teachers, providing services through uh, field experiences and student teaching. And let's also focus on the children that come through as well. Let's focus on the curriculum and what this should look like. And so now we're servicing children from ages two, two years of age to five, and then they they graduate or they have a clap off, <laughs> so not necessarily graduation, into <laughs> kindergarten. You know, um, on purpose, we are an inclusive early child care lab and diagnostic center. We're not just for children with special needs, but we're getting boatloads of them because why? They're not being serviced elsewhere. Other places are turning them away or saying that they, they're not equipped to work with them. And so we, we have a lot of referrals for children with, with, with disabilities that we do take, but we also want to make it clear that it is an inclusive child care lab. And so it's with children with and without disabilities, working together, growing together, and, and the individuals who are providing services and caring for them should have that knowledge as well. Um, also, in addition to this also being a labor of love, while on campus, lab schools are common among institutions of higher education. My last place had a, it was, uh, it was also a childcare lab, right? It was lottery um, funded. And um, so there were resources coming in, right? And then we also had a comprehensive uh, diagnostic lab and service center for our speech pathology programs, or there's now, there's not ours anymore, <laughs> speech pathology programs and reading programs, other types of programs there. Uh, so this is normal. Right, and and you should know that I'm at an HBCU now, but my other two institutions were PWIs, uh, predominantly white institutions, right? And so while again, um, on-campus lab schools are common, right, among IHEs, institutions of higher education, they are rare among HBCUs. Mm -hmm. That's a proud moment. I hope to 
provide a good, strong model of what to do. And we have submitted a, a, a conference proposal uh, in anticipation that if funded, that if awarded, that we would be able to share and even provide technical assistance to other HBCUs. In addition, as I mentioned before, I have earned tenure for the second time and promotion to the rank of professor while in this position as, as dean. Those are those are pretty good accomplishments. Holy cow! Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier that um, that you've gotten better at patience over the last couple of years as a leader. Do you have any advice for a new college dean stepping into a position? Sure. So when I when I step into the position, there are people who are here longer than I was, and there are people who are older than I am. And um, sometimes I did feel as if there was some undermining. I did feel at times that um, people thought, well, whew, little girl, you're young enough to be my child. <laughs> and so it had to take, um, I think the changes of, initial responses of me wanting to to um, prove that I am knowledgeable and I am, you know, I have the authority. It was to also get to um, understand individuals, where they're coming from, and then show them, not with words, but show them my capabilities. And I think one big piece was the preparation of the accreditation QARs, the quality assurance reports. Um, as I mentioned before, we're, we're small. We don't have a lot of people. And um, because we are where we are, people come and they leave, you know, fun, sand, um, sun. And then we're, when they're ready, they go back one to two years later. And so someone was needed to lead in the writing of the undergraduate teacher preparation QAR. And I'm used, that's, you know, that's faculty driven. I have done it as a faculty member and program director, but here I am as a dean writing this. And so took the lead, wrote this thing. Um, I had the other two, we have three QARs. And so we had lead authors for those other two QARs who were at the graduate level, but also um, I, I facilitated the entire process. And I think um, that and the fact that I had um, ideas, you know, or even just the fact that I wanted us to put all three together. Um, there are some people who said it after the fact, you know, I thought you were crazy, you know, how are we going to do this? And I think you have to have that vision. You make it plain, you share it, and then you show individuals what it will look like. And if, if I'm looking like I'm not confident unsure of myself, then why would they want to trust me or be confident in my skills or what I can do? So I think it was a more of modeling and um, less talk, showing them more what I could do and encouraging. Not taking it all on my own, not everything, but also showing them parts where they should fit in. And so I think I have set it up straight now where the next time, which is seven years from now, this comes up, they should be ready, those who are here, and, and I pray that they still remain here, because <laughs> it's hard to restart every time with some with a new person, right? That they should be able to take the lead for those three separate 
quality assurance reports. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I, that, that's, that's one thing that I've sat on a few of those accreditation committees, but I was never absolutely the, the front runner on that. I would, that would seem like such a hard job. So I can imagine how proud you are for getting that. I am. It took a lot out of me. And I just should, full disclosure, I have in the past served as a as a site visitor, <laughs> not for this particular accreditation um, agency, but I have done that. And it is a lot of work, as, yeah. as you know, it's, it's really a lot of work. Yeah. Well, what do you think are the major challenges that universities will face over the next five years? Well, there's a discussion about an enrollment cliff that is coming. As I mentioned to you before, um, I think in a pr prior discussion, prior to us starting today, um, a few minutes ago, is that for us, you know, we've been dealing with issues related to enrollment decline um, because of two hurricanes, back-to-back -back hurricanes, Irma Maria, Maria, that devastated the U.S. territory, and then COVID, what the world has experienced. So we, we're still dealing with, with the aftermath of, of um, Irma Maria. We're still um, having some uh, buildings that were offline um, being worked on. You know, one of our academic units was just um, reopened, brought back online um, in January. You know, this is, let me remind you, the hurricanes were in 2017. <laughs> Jeez. You know, so we, we've dealt with some of those, those, those challenges, those issues. Um, so I believe we'll continue to experience some challenges with enrollment decline particularly for brick and mortar institutions and not just for education programs. We know nationally at the undergraduate level, um, people are, are not becoming teachers and teachers are, are discouraging their own children from becoming teachers. That, that's in the literature, right? Um, we know that more so, more graduate level students are going to education, maybe as a second career, um, they, they were doing something else and now they want to teach. Or um, for those who are in the schools already, they are now wanting to maybe go into leadership or move over into a, a support role like a school psychologist or a school counselor. And so they're coming back to graduate school. Um, but I believe that there's a push towards skills over degrees. Um, we have a generation that believe they can earn money as social media influencers, right? They can go on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. And some of them, guess what? They're making some money. Yeah. And so we have this here and now generation, and they're not thinking about later on in the future, right? And I, I absolutely still believe that degrees are important, but we have to convince this new generation, this generation that's getting ready to you know, come to school, you know, that, that, um, of this, of the same thing, earning a degree is is still um, very much important. Yeah, I think I think the majority of presidents and deans I've talked to say the same thing. Is is you know when you look at skills, and that's great, but you know you're forgetting the other side of that. So um, I always think it's important to mention that in the podcast. Um, why do you think? And this, I'm just asking for your opinion. Why do you think? teachers are not encouraging their own children now to become teachers? Well, um, the salary, it costs, 
the salaries are really, really, really small. Um, even when they raise the salaries, the salaries are are still insignificant when it compares to, for example, when you graduate with a business degree, right? Or you graduate with a degree in um, engineering or as people push science, technology, STEM, a STEM degree, um, and you're not going into teaching. <laughs> you're actually going to become a scientist, you know, and and their conditions. So um, high caseload of students, um, low resources. And I can tell you, because I have worked in the school system, uh, low resources, a lot of times you're taking money out of your own pocket um, to pay for certain materials. It depends on where you are, where, you know, what neighborhood um, where your school is located. Um, I think all of that comes together. So it's not just the salaries, but it's lack of resources, it's the conditions, it's the work that they have to go through, they have to deal with. Um, if they are underprepared um, to work with children with exceptionalities, um, English learners, as well as those with disabilities, that can pro prove to be challenging as well. What do you think the opportunities will look like then? in the next few years for higher ed? Hybrid learning. If you are a brick and mortar um, institution and you're still saying, I only believe that we should have face-to-face -face on the ground courses, then you're gonna get swallowed up. You know, I don't know if you see some of the advertisements from others allowing students to, it's like a menu, they go into um, Burger King, have it your way, right? And um, they can, pick from their menu of what they want that to look like for them because they're pushing towards the working professional. When I was an undergraduate, I was on campus full-time, very traditional, right? I had a college work study job, right? And um, I didn't have a care in the world, but now we have a lot of, 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 of our non-traditional students. We have a lot of students who are even traditional, but they're working, they are working. So we're even at the undergraduate level, wanting to provide classes later on in the afternoon after we've known that they've, they've had, um, I guess they've worked, they've gone to work. Um, I would say embracing online education, done well. Not a correspondence course, right? Because what's the point? Why would they have to come and pay us to teach them if it's just a correspondence course, right. they teach themselves. So it has to be done very well, right? I like the whole I, hybrid, um, format where you have maybe some Zoom, not three hours of Zoom, my goodness. You know, 80% of what we hear is lost and yet we still continue to just lecture. But to have uh, uh, where you're flipping the classroom and they're doing all kinds of things outside and then they come in for a rich discussion. Um, if it's 100% online, that they're hearing the, the, the professor, seeing the professor, there's a video clips of, of, of the presentation as well as other activities for them to do, case studies, different ways for them to assess their knowledge. Um, even in, if we're looking at student teaching or the school of education or colleges of education, embracing technology for field experiences, uh, student teaching experiences and similar internships for other school professionals. Um, I don't have to physically be in the same area. I have a student who is in Texas right now and um, we're in the Virgin Islands, right? The, the university supervisor is not in Texas, right? There's, a, there's technology 
that can be used where we can observe our students. We can rate them in this, this system um, where the students are teaching their students and we don't have to see their students if that's the issue. Now, if it's a, if it's a teaching place like the childcare lab, then they sign, you know, um, a waiver that that they're working with students and that they may get photographed and they may be seen in a in a video. But if it's not like that, there are ways through technology that mm. that can be accomplished, right? Um, and COVID taught us that. COVID yeah. taught us that you don't have to shut down everything. And when everyone went to virtual school, there's a way for even student teaching to be done when students are virtual now. For the young children and even for undergraduates, is it best for on the ground in person? I think in person and even with us speaking with, with each other right now is the best way, but it's not the only way. Right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. You know, you mentioned uh, non-traditional students, and I agree that um, they kind of struggle sometimes at regular or, or traditional universities and colleges. Mm-hmm. Are you guys doing anything uh, unique for them? For non-traditional students, um, we offer, uh, I guess, similar supports as a professional development seminar, uh, similar to the freshman development seminar. Um, so whether they are in the UBI, we have some some students that live on campus, but we have many others who do not. It's a high high commuter um, campus, campuses, actually. And so, um, which means that most of these students, when you're talking about non-traditional, you're talking about just older or those who are working. Right. And that's what, you know, and that's what's so funny now when I say non-traditional, it seems <laughs> like that's now your core group of students sometimes. But I'm, so I'm looking for older and working, but basically right. over the age of 25. Right. And so providing them with the same kind of advising, providing them with, um, orientation to school, what that looks like, um, orientation to use of things like PowerPoint, things that we would take for granted, right. right? Because they've been out for so long or haven't been in school at all, right? What we don't do, which I would, uh, as we we're in this discussion right now, right, would be to also um, offer family housing, you know, wow. um, and course credit, which we do do. But more, I think, to structure it more, course credit for experiences that that people bring with them. Yeah, it's really, it was always frustrating when you would see like even a veteran coming out or whatever with this mass amount of knowledge. And and, and when they'd go, go downstairs and get checked all out, like we couldn't give them anything. It's like, this is crazy for their past yeah. experience. Plus that experience in a classroom is always exciting too. I think for right. students that are a little bit younger, they get to, the students get to learn from each other. Absolutely. Whether it's in the classroom, the, the uh, on the ground in-person classroom or virtual classroom, through the discussion threads, they can get to learn from each other as well. When you set it up and require them to respond to one another, come up with a question and not just the, I agree, but why do you agree? Right. Why do you disagree? What would yeah. you want to add to this discussion or this response from your classmate? Yeah. Well, let's change topics. Uh, a lot of colleges and universities now are focusing their attention of the mental health of students. And considering what you've gone through in the last few years, I'm curious on what you're doing 
for the for for the mental health of students and also for the mental health of faculty. Sure, an excellent question and very very important. Um, here at at UVI, we recently we being the uh, dean of students for both campuses recently received a mental health grant, and so they will. It has multiple components. I cannot, I will not be able to intelligibly tell you about all the different components, but basically, it's to train faculty to engage faculty and students in where to seek mental health and to increase mental health awareness on campus. So it's a campaign and they're reaching out to uh, the, the larger community, the Virgin Islands community to engage in uh, these uh, professional development activities related to, to mental health awareness. But um, also in the process of providing that support through updating policies around mental health as a university. And then um, what we have not done because this is brand new would be then since the, st the strategic plan is, is due to be updated next year, it would be to add to the strategic plan. I think that's the best mm -hmm. thing you can do is when you add and incorporate those kinds of things into the strategic plan and that means you have goals right. attached to it, then it's there's a greater likelihood that we'll be able to actually um, operationalize mental health awareness. Uh, that's a great idea about adding it to the strategic plan. Um, if you had kind of a fun question, if you had extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it? I would use the funds to develop a recruitment and retention center for teachers and other school professionals, such as speech language pathologists, school counselors, you know, um, school psychologists, and the support would cover tuition and fees for students who are eligible for free tuition. Also provide support for books, uh, professional development opportunities to supplement coursework, uh, co-curricular activities, and uh, teacher slash other school professional induction programs. So don't just leave them high and dry after everything is done at the university level, but to address some of those other issues, why teachers and other school professionals, when they go into the schools after three years average, they leave. Right or why teachers, um, when they graduate with a bachelor's degree in education, don't even step one day on the job as a teacher. Right, so providing uh, those opportunities from now through this recruitment center, where they get to travel and participate in, in conferences, um, they have mentors, there are co-curricular activities involved, um, and that they would receive a sign-on bonus, not just mm. for those specific areas like special education, but because you're teaching, right? This is a sign-on bonus for you. And then to pay them a pay differential for the first five years of employment to get past that average three years of leaving. Oh, that's a and great then, idea. Holy yeah. cow. That's really a great <laughs> idea. You should, you should, you should get on the stump and, and yell that loud for a lot of people. That's a, I, that's the first I've heard that from uh, oh, other, uh, from you. other deans of college of education. That's a great idea. Well, we um, have to make sure we have the funds that's coming, you know, <laughs> like you said, if I, if I had the funds yeah, but, and I could care less where, you know, where, <laughs> I, wherever it came from and then the money was endless, right. you know, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. But there's one more thing. Also, the additional budget would be used to increase opportunities for study abroad, 
promote innovation in teacher education preparation, such as AI, artificial intelligence. And we've used that during COVID when everything was shut down so that they can get additional hours of practice with um, avatars that were manned by, by humans, which I thought was excellent. Um, all of this is, is costly though. You know, we ever right. do it that one time. Um, and then I would raise faculty salaries in education. So those coming to teach, raise their salaries. It's expensive to live here in the Virgin Islands. Mm. And we want to make sure that when they come, that they can um, live and eat, <laughs> you know, um, offer seed grants to support faculty professional development, creativity, and innovation specifically. That's what I would do. Well, Karen, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.